Hi everyone, I'm Ksenia and I'm Anna and you're listening to CareerZilla, a podcast where people from all over the world share their stories about career change. If you always dreamt of having a new job, a new career, but was not quite sure where to start, this podcast is for you. Stay tuned to learn secret hacks and tricks about career transformation from our guests. Every second and fourth Thursday of the month, our guests will share with you their stories on how to advance career. Hi, we will talk today with two experts from two very different industries who will explain how their professions have been reinvented through big data. First, we talk to Lindsay McCabe from the US, who is a research ecologist and entomologist. We will get to know why Darwin would envy the naturalist of the 21st century. Next, we dive into data journalism with Paulina Kasabutska from Poland, who is a tech researcher and a global ambassador of Women TechNet. She will explain how big data transformed journalism and why you might want to learn programming, even if you study humanities. Well, let's start our conversation with Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. We are very glad that you found some time to join us. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Could you please introduce yourself, your profession, and explain to our listeners what does it mean, entomology and ecology? Sure. Um, so, uh, like you said, I am a entomologist and ecologist. I specifically focus on native bee ecology and how it's important in our ecosystems and how it's important for um, food security. So, I look at how the our bee species, not just honeybees, but I work with uh, the variety of other um, bee species that are in the US. So there's about 4,000 native species to the United States. Um, So I look at how these species are distributed in the landscapes, how they're important for ecological systems, as well as how they're important um, in agricultural systems in providing food crops for us. I use big data or these large databases to assess how species are distributed across the landscape. So um, I'm primarily interested in three questions. First, the really nice thing about insects is, uh, I guess this is a disadvantage and advantage of insects, is that people, when they are collecting insects, Um, they actually collect specimens, that actual specimen, um, and they put them into museum collections. And historically, they're put in these museum collections throughout the world. You can go to natural history museums, and you can go into um, their insect collection, and they're just drawers and drawers and drawers of small insect specimens that have been uh, collected before Darwin was collecting insects. But... The cool thing is now these um, collections have started to be digitized. And so before, when I wanted to know about the bees of Costa Rica, I would have to go to a museum down in Costa Rica. Um, I can now go online and see where these specimens are. And almost all of them are geotagged now. So they have the lat lawn 
Um, and because of this, we can start asking questions about global and landscape um, patterns of these species. And so that's what I've done a lot of, and that's how I've used big data. So we do this in a couple different ways. First, we can do this by creating species distribution models. And these are, this is just a fancy way of saying where are the species located based off of their current conditions. So this can be climate, this can be their floral resources, this can be their nesting habitat, this could be a number of different variables. But then we can also use this data to predict it into the future and see how they're going to do in the future. This would not be possible unless we had all of this data in one spot that was easily accessible. Could you please explain to us how biology of the 21st century use advantages of big data and digitalization? Biology today clearly is very different from the biology of the 19th century, when Charles Darwin was traveling around the world on Beagle, collecting information about different species. How do you see overall the future of biology? Yeah, you know, I think that we have, in general, we've moved away from that core natural history that biologists used to be. And, you know, it used to not be considered a science. It used to be like an amateur hobby. Um, just I'm going to go out and observe what's going on. And I think there's still a lot of that to do. But if we can couple these, this emerging technology that we have, the capability to ask these really large scale questions with the ability to still get in on the ground, boots on the ground, working in the dirt per se, and not giving that up also I think is really important. So it's, it's less of one thing is going to take over another thing, but more so using this technology to our advantage, but not losing our roots in this natural history, because I think we still have a lot to learn about our ecosystem that is not going to be solved from a computer. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with programming. I'm Probably most people do. <laughs> um, when I started my graduate work, I said, I want to be a field ecologist. I want to be outside. I have no desire whatsoever to be in a lab or on a computer. I just, I just want to be outside. <laughs> um, that didn't work for me. Um, so my PhD advisor, he actually pushed me to start doing some of this more big data programming start type things. And um, I learned pretty fast that I was pretty good at it. Um, even though I didn't want to admit that I was good at it and this was a skill, I eventually developed it, but I was completely self-taught. And there was a lot of nights where I cried and wanted to throw my computer out the window because things weren't going well. And so I started with R. So I was introduced to R in my graduate work and basically told this is the way of the future for ecology and biology. 
So I was like, all right, I'm going to force myself to learn this because at least I'll have that skill to set me apart from other people. And so basically what I did every time I had to do a stats or I had to make a graph or something, I tried to do it in R first. And I looked on Google. I went to forums. I read this handy dandy book of R and eventually I just got better at it. And I think the biggest thing was I just practiced and I forced myself to do it so that I could get better at it. But it wasn't easy. It wasn't like it just like I snapped my fingers and I knew how to do it. Um, And I empathize with all those people who hate it and don't want anything to do with it, um, which is actually why I became an instructor. So I now teach um, R through the Carpentries to other people, um, because I think it is such a useful tool to have, but also understand the struggle that it doesn't come naturally to everybody. And it is hard. (laughs) Okay, so the main uh, take home message, find a mentor, and also practice makes perfect. Yeah, yep. I have a follow up question. I think many women feel intimidated by the idea of learning programming or mathematics because they were discouraged uh, in their early life. You also have mentioned that you initially resisted the idea to learn coding. How did you overcome it? I hate the stigma that, you know, women can't do mathematics or, and I know that it's, it comes, it's rooted in something. There are, it, we are underrepresented in this category. Um, But also, it's also true for biologists. Um, Many biologists pursue biology because they don't want to deal with math. Um, But a lot of of biology is math. And I don't think we should shy away from that. I'm pretty stubborn. And when people tell me I can't do something, I tend to do it. Um, So that's how I overcame it. There are so many awesome female mathematicians out there. And even if we don't know their names, like they're not famous, you know, I've seen them in my own career and, and mathematicians who, and statisticians who use this data in ecological, biological ways. I think it's really great to see those examples in our own lives. So lesson number three, female role models. Great. What are the most pressing issues in biology that big data can help to solve? As an entomologist, one of the hardest things that we come across is identifying species quickly and accurately. And so there's a lot of potential. It's not there quite yet, but there's a lot of potential for machine learning and AI to identify the species for us. So The field of taxonomy, so this would be the world where the people in biology who are identifying these species, describing new species, um, are really actually far and few and hard to come by these days. So in the bee world, um, I know of like seven people who are really, really good at identifying bees. It's a small field. And unfortunately, most of those people are older in age. And so if we're not passing down this information, we need new technology to be able to advance our identification. So there's a couple of projects that are working on this. You take a picture 
and it gives you its best guess. Now, they're pretty good for plants right now, but insects are harder, especially because of the minute structures on insects that you have to see to be able to tell species. But it's still an important technology to pursue because it will just get better and better over time. And, you know, I don't want to take away from the taxonomist job here because it, this is also an important role. But using these technologies together, using this person's knowledge and the technology together is going to give us the best and most um, productive um, picture in the future. Essentially, you're talking about citizen science project. And I know that you was involved in the developing of the app exactly uh, for identification of uh, insects. Could you please talk a bit more? First of all, what does it mean, citizen science project? How people can help science? And uh, how this app, for example, for identification of insects uh, works? Yeah, so I um, unfortunately was not involved in the programming aspect of this app. Um, I was mostly involved in cataloging these images, providing the test images, identifying these species so that they could be used in the algorithm. The point um, of this project was so that, you know, scientists can't be everywhere at once. And if a person, anybody, someone who's out hiking goes and snaps a picture of an insect, they don't need to collect that specimen for us to say, yes, this is here. This is really big in the bumblebee world um, because bumblebees are large and they're easy to identify from pictures, but this has actually helped us track endangered bumblebee, Bombus affinis. Um, so there's been more records of Bombus affinis since the this bumblebee um, citizen scientists program has been launched. And so we've been able to expand the range a little bit of this species so that we can get a more accurate idea of how it's doing. Uh, right now, you have probably access to the immense amount of data, which neither Darwin nor any other naturalist from 19th or even 20th century could even dream about. Do you believe that you and your colleagues right now at the beginning of the 21st century, you have some fundamentally different level of understanding of ecological system, for example, compared to your colleagues from the middle of 20th century? Um Yes, I do. I think we're learning every day more and more. However, we still have so much more to learn. Um, so there's an estimated 1.3 million insect species described right now. Um, but we also estimate that there's about 10 million that are undescribed. So despite the fact that we have advanced a lot, um, we still have a long way to go. Um, another really interesting uh, factoid, I suppose, is that we currently, so bees, I'm always going to reference bees because that's what I know the most, but with bees, there are currently 2.3 million specimens digitized. However, in collections, so undigitized specimens, um, we estimate there's about 7 million. So even just digitizing what we already have in U.S. collections can add an exponential amount of information. 
Yeah, that sounds very impressive. I'm pretty <laughs> sure Darwin now is really jealous uh, and envy. <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's really easy in biology and ecology and the natural sciences to avoid programming, to avoid stats, to avoid kind of doing these um, harder looked at um, skills. But if you acquire them and if you have the opportunity to take an R class or to um, learn programming, any form, Python, are um, SQL. These are all skills that can be highly sought after. And because the job market is so atrocious right now, um, setting yourself apart with these can be um, a deal breaker. I do think that outreach and educating our public is a strong component of, or is a critical component of any um, research program. So if we're not distributing our information, if we're not educating our the citizens on what we're doing, I don't think it's even worth doing science. So we need to be, we as scientists need to be better communicators of our research and of our, um, our outputs. Thank you very much for this inspirational conversation. We wish you all the best for your future. And we really hope that you succeed in your efforts to preserve bees. And now let's hear what Paulina Kasabutska has to say about data journalism and how she used big data in her job. Hello, thank you so much for the invitation to this amazing podcast. So you're a data journalist. I have to admit that I'm not entirely sure what data journalists do. And I really hope it's not only me who asks herself this question. Could you please explain for us uh, what you actually do? And, you know, data journalism in general is a digital progressive form of journalism, also called data-based journalism or data-driven journalism. And it's, it's using a large amount of numerical data and showing news in interactive forms, uh, mostly data visualizations, graphs, tables, maps, infographics, and so on for better reception. So data journalists um, create uh, these media messages. And, you know, data journalists grew out of the need to use huge public databases. And what's important, it reflects um, the increased interaction between journalists and other fields, for example, design, computer science, statistics, and so on. So we connect all these fields and create something really nice. Ah, okay. That means when I see an article in a magazine with some infographics that talks about statistics, it explains some data, that was done by a data journalist, right? Yeah, graphic designers uh, also create uh, such things, uh, but data journalists are strictly responsible for doing such things. Data journalists uh, are like data scientists. You know, you don't have to be a programmer to, to become a data journalist. Uh, data journalism is based on big data like data science, but here uh, graphic designers' uh, skills are also used. So this is a mix of a few 
different field. Uh, a few days ago, a new monograph was printed, uh, and it's called Future of Media, Changing Journalism and New Communication. And there is my uh, the newest chapter uh, called the, uh, the Future of Media, Data Journalism uh, and Synesthetic Communication. Uh, you know, synesthesia is a phenomenon of receiving one stimulus with more than one sense. For example, seeing music and I can see music in colors and this is something very interesting. But well, relating to data journalism, uh, I think that in the future, technology development can contribute to create more complex forms of media messages, combining more senses, including touch, smell, taste, even if now it seems to be, uh, in general, improbable. Uh, visualization, sonification, tactility, tasting, smelling may be necessary to understand some modern presentations of data. Yes, synesthesia is a very interesting phenomenon. You can literally taste the music or hear the color if you have the special neurological state when senses that are normally not connected merge together. If you're a fan of the popular TV show The Big Bang Theory, as I am, you might recall one of the main characters, an old genius Sheldon Cooper. When he answers the question about his incredible abilities to analyze large data sets very fast, Sheldon tells, well, it wasn't difficult, you know, how when you see prime numbers, they appear red, but when they are twin primes, they are pink and smell like gasoline. This vivid image pretty much summarizes the synesthesia experience in a nutshell. So do you really think that data science and data journalism might exploit this phenomena and we all can become a little bit synesthetes? Yeah, I think that it's incredible when data journalists will be able to connect all these uh, senses. The media message will be uh, more interesting. And, you know, when we will receive it with all senses, it will be uh, also more understandable, maybe. I would like to go back to the time when you just started to learn coding. It was definitely a big challenge since your background was in social sciences. How did you manage to do that? How did you learn programming? Um, you know, when I was uh, studying journalism, I uh, simultaneously I was studying linguistics, and then I learned about natural language processing, and this was very interesting to me. I wanted to learn it, and this is how it really started. So I'm not a programmer, but I really wanted to learn programming. So I started from C++ and I really didn't like it. So I switched to Python. Uh, I love the simple syntax and this language is my favorite. And Ruby is a nice language as well. And you have to choose Python or R. Uh, these two languages uh, are mostly used in data science. So they are also good for data journalism. Finally, I um, decided to write about uh, data journalism. So I didn't really use these languages. Yeah, but I connected the NLP with data journalism. I belong to this group of people who uh, work in data journalism but with no coding really. So I know what you have to do as a programmer uh, when you are a data scientist in data journalism, uh, but I don't really do it. That's very cool. In a way, you are working as an interpreter between tech and the rest of the world. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, um, I think that, uh, you know, this is uh, also a cool field, uh, data journalism, I mean, for people who uh, don't really uh, feel programming. Uh, so there are people who were uh, studying another uh, humanistic uh, fields and they decided to, to go in tech and data journalism uh, was a nice option for them. But there are also uh, programmers who were bored of data science because they they needed something more or they wanted to connect uh, this field so yeah there are many many different people because it's still new and this is uh, still not very popular so i think that uh, when more and more people will be interested in data journalism uh, then the transformation will start uh, because uh, you know, when there are more people, more ideas, uh, then it's uh, something new uh, happens. Uh, well, but I think that uh, it can uh, that technology development can contribute to create more complex form of media messages, and I think that this will be the biggest transformation. But we will see. This is difficult. Do you have an advice uh, for somebody who is just starting to uh, advance their career, to adapt to the current uh, world uh, and maybe to the future uh, transformations in this uh, field? In general, the best way to start is just uh, starting own small projects. You know, there are many resources when you can get inspiration from. Um, for example, the Google News Initiative, there are many courses there are many tools and many instructions and also different resources. Um, just read, learn from it. For example, um, datajournalism.com. This is a great site. I'm a contributor there and I learned from that uh, site very, very much uh, important things. And another resource like European Data Journalism Network. There are many tools to work with data. Yeah, but as I started, um, I think start with uh, own small projects. This is the very important issue. You know, uh, Data Journalism Handbook, this is a great book. Uh, here you have uh, all uh, these all definitions and everything relating to data journalism is located in Data Journalism Handbook, right? So this is a, a book that I would recommend. Thank you very much for your time. It was an exciting discussion about data Thank you for being with us. If you're interested to learn more about career transitions, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find links in the podcast description. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Stay tuned. <laughs>